Welcome to a special episode of Talking Feds, a prosecutor's roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials for a dynamic discussion of the most important legal issues of the day. This week, impeachment proceedings move from the Intelligence Committee, where Adam Schiff and a series of witnesses have brought forward an overwhelming case of bribery and rank abuse of power by President Trump to Jerry Nadler and the Judiciary Committee, which is charged with actually voting out articles of impeachment. And that committee will begin its work with a panel of scholars addressing constitutional grounds for presidential impeachment and exploring whether the president's actions rise to the constitutional level of high crimes and misdemeanors. I'm Harry Littman. I'm a former United States attorney and deputy assistant attorney general and a current Washington Post columnist. This week, we have a two-part episode to preview the coming hearing and situate it in the context of the nearest historical analog, the forced resignation of Richard Nixon in 1974 for obstruction of justice, abuse of power, and contempt of Congress, all offenses in play today. Followers of this podcast know that we previously published an episode on the topic of high crimes and misdemeanors featuring constitutional law professors Larry Tribe and Erwin Chemerinsky and Congress member and constitutional law professor Jamie Raskin. It was a fantastic discussion that was vitally important then and now is of even greater relevance as the Democrats try to turn the country's focus to the meaning of high crimes and misdemeanors as applied to the very case they've already built and continue to build against the president. So today we are reissuing some of the most pertinent parts of that discussion and updating it with a new discussion with three other of the most knowledgeable and prominent analysts of the impeachment process. They are all returning contributors well known to listeners of this podcast, David Fromm, David is a political commentator and senior editor at The Atlantic, and he is the author of eight books, including Trumpocracy, The Corruption of the American Republic. David, thank you very much for joining us. What a pleasure to return. Jill Wine-Banks, who was one of three assistant Watergate special prosecutors, the only woman among them. She later served as general counsel of the U.S. Army, and she was Illinois' first solicitor general. Welcome back, Jill. Thank you very much, Harry. And finally, Liz Holtzman, a former representative to New York's 16th Congressional District, at the time the youngest woman ever elected to Congress, and in 1974, a member of the House Judiciary Committee that recommended three articles of impeachment against President Richard Nixon. Thank you very much, Congresswoman, or I hope we can call you Liz on Talking Feds for uh, returning. Thank you. Glad to be with you and your audience. All right. So let's jump right in. Um, What do you think of starting the Judiciary Committee proceedings with a panel of legal scholars on the topic of high crimes and misdemeanors? Are they at risk of being too arcane? And what exactly are they trying to achieve and whom exactly are they trying to reach? Anybody? Well, I'll weigh in on that. This is Jill. Um, I do think it runs a risk of being too academic and not capturing the public imagination. On the other hand, I feel that because the Republicans have not challenged even one little bit of the facts of the abuse of power or the facts of the bribery, the only thing they've questioned is whether it is an impeachable crime, that it may be the necessary place to start and to set the tone for what does the Constitution say about what we meant when we wrote that clause, what exactly is an impeachable crime? Yeah, I mean, tone is a really good word here because they want, I mean, this is a supposed to be something of a high-minded civics exercise. And part of the Republican strategy seems to have been to try to demean, trivialize it, make it a, a circus, you know, in, in, impeachment, a Rama, et, et cetera. So, so yes, it makes it more august. 
on the other hand, you will do people too now. Did you do anything like this? Do you recall, Liz, in, in 1974 to either either to educate your yourselves, the committee or the American public, which I guess raises the question also, you know, who is the audience here? Well, uh, the very first thing we did in the impeachment process against Richard Nixon was to examine the constitutional standard. There had been an impeachment uh, process against a president when we started in 1974 for almost 100 years, and that right. had been universally condemned. Uh, nobody in law school had been taught um, that clause. Uh, none of us understood it. So there was a lot of scrambling at the beginning to understand what the Constitution meant. Uh, we didn't do it in public, but we did it behind closed doors. But that was what we spent the initial process on. And it's a vital thing to do because members of the committee uh, need to understand what's involved and what the standard means. I mean, I was. So what did you do exactly? Well, first, we had a memorandum that was prepared by the committee staff that was circulated to members. And as I recall, we had committee discussion about it. The Republicans were very firm in the view that a, uh, at that time, that to have an impeachable offense in terms of a high crime and misdemeanor, you had to have the commission of a crime. The memo argued against that, said the history of the meaning of the term was against that. And in the end, the committee, by a majority vote, determined that no crime was necessary. Just to get to the tone point that you raised, I think that the American people don't need to be entertained by this. And I think the idea of just doing entertainment is wrong. Ultimately, what they want to see is a process that looks and seems serious and fair. And that's what has to happen here. And I think that it's appropriate to start with what is the meaning of the Constitution, treason, bribery, or other high kinds of misdemeanors, which is the standard for impeachment, and uh, how would it apply in these circumstances? Oh, uh, worse than that, I think it's a mistake on, on three different grounds. Um, okay. The, the, first, uh, the first ground is, look, if I'm, if I'm prosecuting an armed robber, uh, I do not open my presentation to the jury by discussing, is private property just? That if, if you don't believe private property is just, you shouldn't be on the jury. Um, what the Democrats are doing by opening in this way is invite, precisely inviting a kind of uh, sabotage of the conversation by bogging the thing down at the very beginning on the, on the argument is attempting to rig an election to your advantage. You know, is that a misdemeanor? Or is that serious? Uh, I think it builds into the argument that you think you're facing a good faith objection about whether Trump's crimes are serious enough. That's not what this argument is going ultimately to be about. The argument is, is really about that uh, Trump's defenders think he's entitled to do almost anything or else they think that he's um, so morally feeble that although he does things that are wrong, um, you really can't judge him because he's got a kind of defense of limited capacity. I think that will be the real defense in the Senate, limited, explicit or implicit, limited capacity. The second Explicit thing or wrong, implicit, those are, that's really different, though. If, 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 well, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, well, I, I, you, you see this. Um, you've seen this in many of Trump's media defenders. They will say, you know, well, he didn't. It wasn't. I, I think some of one of his senator defenders has said this too. He wasn't wrong in his own mind, or he does things like yeah. this all the time, or he didn't understand what, that he shouldn't do this, or it's certainly inappropriate. It's just the way he behaves. That's a kind of diminished capacity defense. Um, you wouldn't accept that any other president behaved this way, but but because Trump, because he lacks any sense of morality. <laughs> <laughs> the rules for him have to be different from other people. The second problem with it is it is being done, I think, as, as and I believe Jill said, because of the precedent of Watergate. You're following the procedures of the past. The essence of impeachments is they're always new. There isn't a big enough data set. And in fact, they, they shouldn't be driven by precedent. They should be adjusted to the needs of, of the case. And that is especially damaging here because uh, the discussion of precedent returns us not to Watergate, but to the impeachment nobody wants to talk about, and that is the impeachment of Bill Clinton. Because while there is lots and lots of tape, um, uh, video of people like uh, Lindsey Graham reversing themselves and acting in ways that are seemingly hypocritical, it's also true that for many of the people who were there in 1998 defending Bill Clinton, who was caught in the act of perjury, they're also going to be able to, they're going to be made to look bad. And so I think one of the reasons that the Democrats want to start this way is they want to create an exit ramp for Democrats who are against the impeachment of Bill Clinton, um, who was caught in a definite crime, to vote for the impeachment of Donald Trump, who was caught in the act of attempting a crime. 
I mean, he did things that were objectively very wrong, but the criminal parts had not actually closed as of the time that he reversed himself. And so I think one of the things that Democrats need to do is say, you know what? We may actually not have been entirely in the right about Bill, Bill Clinton, but, but be that as it may, we are not going to relitigate the Clinton impeachment any more than we're going to relitigate the Watergate impeachment. And what you find by ra- raising this question of what are the standards is you open the door to not only 1974, but to 1998. I agree with what David just said. I mean, he's made a very compelling case. But I think there are a number of differences that undermine some of those arguments. First of all, this hearing is not for the jury, which is the Senate. This is for either internally, as Liz was suggesting, is that the first thing that the House Judiciary Committee needed to do during Watergate was to answer the constitutional questions. And so they're answering it for themselves. But also, as a trial lawyer, I would say it is preempting the arguments of the other side. The arguments of the other side, as David has so clearly said, are he's all-powerful, either that or he's so uh, limited in his mental capacity that you can't hold him accountable, and that precedence is a problem. So on, on all of those, I would say that you're answering the facts that are presented, which is, first of all, in in terms of even if it was for the jury, the answer to the question is so clear that I don't see it as a risk, that the answer is that this falls absolutely clearly within the impeachment standards. If this is not a case for impeachment, then the impeachment clause has no meaning at all, because if not now, What possibly could constitute an impeachable offense? And the comparison to Clinton is so clearly inapplicable because Clinton's acts were inappropriate, clearly, and were immoral, clearly, but they had nothing to do with the use of his power as president. And so it didn't threaten our democracy in the same way. It also didn't involve a foreign power and our foreign policy. And so I'd be willing to take on all of those things. And saying that this is only an attempt, number one, that is a crime. And secondly, he succeeded in some of his attempts. For example, the obstruction of justice happened. The It's ongoing right now and is threatening our democracy right now. It continues not just in terms of obstructing the Mueller investigation, not just obstructing the impeachment inquiry, but obstructing, for example, the inquiry into children in cages and our immigration policies. He is not letting his White House administration people come to testify and to fulfill the main constitutional premise of a tripartite government with checks and balances. Congress cannot do oversight if it can't have witnesses. Let me follow up on both those points, sort of combine them and ask ask Liz what she thinks. Because the one thing I tend to doubt about, I'm just not certain that that the summary of their arguments, diminished capacity, all powerful, I mean, that's what they sort of add up to, or maybe what people say in the halls. But I've heard very scattershot, almost absence of arguments, and really in the public proceedings, just a kind of derision of the whole thing and an attack on Democrats. So, I mean, in a sense, I think it is somebody has to somehow break through and and explain the stakes here and bringing it back to Federalist 65 and the, you know, abuse of of the high power of office is, you know, it feels like a necessity, but I I don't think it will be, in fact, meeting the, joining the battle where they're actually making it. And so I don't, I'm not sure there is an alternative, but it, I don't think it's to preempt arguments. It's to try to actually ground this, as Liz says, in some kind of serious proceedings. How do you see, or to, to anybody, the Republicans comporting themselves and responding to these high-minded, scholarly explanations? Well, I I certainly can't predict what the Republicans will do. I mean, they have exceeded every expectation about lunacy and impropriety and lack of seriousness. 
Uh, but I think there's a great danger to them in this because that's if you go back to the Nixon impeachment process, for the most part, in the end, while some of the members of the committee tried to do the grandstanding, outrageous, blah, blah, blah number, ultimately the seriousness of the, of, seriousness of, the, of the proceedings kind of made everybody focus. And some of the nonsensical stuff uh, went and grandstanding went by the wayside. But I do think, I mean, I think David raises some very uh, cogent points, but I do think in the end you have to weigh in the balance what has to come out of this. And first and foremost is the Democrats have to show, and actually anybody who feels strongly about our democracy and the constitutional system, has to show that we're being serious about this process. And the basis of it is what is the standard we're trying to meet? We did not have public debate about the constitutional standard. That was done internally in the committee. We did debate it. I just hearing the Intelligence Committee debate and discussion and the question showed that at least one of the members was seriously wrong about the constitutional standard. He said he didn't see the crime of bribery or extortion. You don't need to see a crime in an impeachable offense. And the fact that, that they're talking about crimes is something that has to be debunked. Uh, I, I think, uh, Harry, you raise an important point, which is some of the stuff that's been out there is seriously incorrect. For example, the claim that an impeachment is a coup. It's an overthrow of the government. The right. president's been saying it. Other people have been saying it. I think it's really critical to lay out the fact that the framers did not create a coup. This is not yeah. a coup. It is a removal of a president who threatens our democracy. And I think that point is vital. I think some of the other arguments that they're going to make that also have to be debunked is in a way everybody does it. We do right. quid pro quo a foreign policy. If we do this for uh, Guatemala, they do that for us. That point has to be clarified. Of course, everything in the end is for our own self-interest, but it is the interest of the United States of America right. and not the private interest of the president of the United States and not even private. But this is what the president was asking for was an assault on our free election system itself. So the stakes really have to be played out. I think what what this could be, should be, is a discussion that will lead the American people to help them, lead them to understand not just what the grounds are, but what the stakes are. It's not just that you have someone who commits bribery as president or someone who commits a high crime and misdemeanor as a president, but what does this mean for us? Yes, it's not going to put bread and butter on the table, but it's going to put our constitution in some kind of safe position because if a president can act for his own purpose, if he can use the whole machinery of government to influence the outcome of an election for his personal gain, if he can undermine Congress, stonewall it, uh, threaten our system of checks and balances in this profound way as he do has done, well, what, what's left of our democracy? That's the critical thing that has to be brought across. One, to debunk some of the ridiculous arguments that have been made, and secondly, to begin to make the case of the significance to preserving our democracy of holding President Trump guilty of an impeachable offense. And th those arguments haven't fully been made, and I think this is an opportunity to do that. Will it work? <laughs> David raises an important point. Maybe yeah. it won't. I mean, it, it really seems essential, and yet it really seems like possibly futile given the, the strangeness of this uh, proceeding to date has been the willingness of the Republicans to go, you know, gonzo to, on, at, at every turn and not engage. David, I, I think you were just about to say something, and I also wanted to pose to you the question, if you can add to it, of how you see the Republicans acting in Wednesday's hearing. Normally, when you have one of these conversations about a complex matter with skilled and sophisticated and knowledgeable people, the um, the longer the conversation extends, the more you think, well, the truth is somewhere in the middle here. And, right. And, and I have to say, this is not one of those conversations that as, as I hear it, I think, boy, I am more and more alarmed about the decision. Because, look, when you're in a true legal proceeding, 
it is true that your trier, certainly your judge, and if there's a jury, even your jury, um, uh, is that listening with um, a pad of paper or some kind of note-taking system is noting the arguments that are being raised and is afterwards questioning whether each argument has been answered or not. If something is raised and it is not met in some way, that's a problem. That is not how things work on television, in politics. One mm-hmm. of my own rules for success in media, on modern social media, is never argue about arguments. Um, always keep the main thing the main thing. And if you're dealing with someone who's whose method of argument is to raise as many distractions, open as many booby traps as possible, say as many ludicrous things as possible, in the hope that you will diffuse your energy by responding to them. The the, the way you meet that person is actually by relentless focus on the main thing and not inviting, accepting any of the invitations to wander down byways. The core of the Republican argument against impeachment, beyond the things we've all said, is negative partisanship. The Democrats are doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, the Democrats are a threat to white America. Um, this impeachment is therefore a threat to white America, uh, therefore defeat the impeachment. That's the argument. Everything else is just so much invitation to waste time. So facing the fact of negative partisanship, the way you defeat that is you take advantage of the Democratic strategic advantage, which is that while the Republicans have a more intense following and more intense negative partisanship, uh, partisanship, the Democrats have a larger potential coalition. This is a 60-40 country, and Republicans are on the 40% side. It's not a 50-50 country. And so that that means getting the the more fragmented uh, Democratic coalition exercised enough and excited enough about what's happening to focus on the main thing. So to to unite that 60% Democratic coalition, um, I think there are two things in in what is going to be such a difficult enterprise anyway, and not just to remove, which is very likely impossible, but even to use this in a way that it frames the debate for 2020 in a way that hurts Trump more than it helps him. Um, There are two strategic imperatives that Democrats have. The first is not to focus their impeachment at all on things that fragment their own um, coalition. So, you know, uh, the liberal part of the Democratic coalition is very exercised by the Trump immigration policy, kids in cages, as they call it. Um, you start talking, but that's like uh, the attempt back during the Watergate time to impeach Nixon for the Vietnam War, or the Cambodia invasion. All you do there is split your own, because it's not true that all the 60% who are anti-Trump um, agree with the most active, most liberal part of the Democratic coalition on its, on its, on its immigration views. What the 60% does get exercised about is realizing that Trump's goal here was to make it impossible to defeat him at a fair election. That was his project, to, to sabotage the election. And that the extortion and everything else was in service of sabot- ma- making it impossible to do what the Republicans say they want, which is let's leave this to the voters. They were not going to leave it to the voters. So focus on the main thing, which is the sabotage of the election, the attack on the possibility of voting Trump out of office. And you and get your 60 percent excited about that on television, which is how they're going to see it uh, through viral media. That's this is this is the beginning of the of the most intense phase of the 2020 campaign. You don't have to meet every argument. You don't have to debunk it. You can't because the arguments aren't raised in good faith. Your your reward for debunking a, a stupid argument is to be presented with a stupider one. So do you think what they should be doing? I mean, you're you're alarmed. Is the worry just loss of time and air leaking on the tires a little? And do you think instead they should be doing more factual development? I, I don't I think Democrats should take lots of time because they control they control the initiative so long as the case is in the House and they lose the initiative when the case moves to the Senate. So, yes, use the time. But I would think about this as a television program. Think of Breaking Bad. You got to open big and then you got to close big. <laughs> if you've got any, if you've, it's most important to open big. So your your first presentation must be your most thrilling, most exciting, um, and must make people understand not you know this man walked into a, into a bank there on a day when there were kids opening their accounts and brandished a gun and tried to steal the pro, the contents of the bank and actually you know shot a teller uh, didn't kill her mercifully. Um, we do not need, you know, later on, the defense may raise the question of, are, is the banking system just? Is private property right? <laughs> you know, at what age does a child become a teenager? Uh, and if those questions are raised, we can meet them then. But let's begin by discussing the horror of what happened on the bank robbery that day. I'm going to serve it up for some final thoughts, but I want to fold in here the, the point to the extent uh, you were, were worried about David's, you know, lack of TV drama. 
how the change from uh, expert prosecutor presentation of tight um, narratives, Adam Schiff, to more parliamentary, Jerry Nadler may may play out. So um, sort of final thoughts on just what's ahead of the, the, the what the nature of the challenge for the Democrats, Liz and then Jill. The point that I wanted to make is that the drama in this, as it was in Watergate, is the seriousness of the proceedings and the intelligence and fairness of the people who are speaking. I agree completely that what has to be pointed out is that at stake here is the president's right to interfere in our election system in a nefarious and corrupt way, which is what happened, which is in the Ukraine gate situation. But that point can be made by every single speaker who is talking about the constitutional standard. I think that that point, I completely agree that the significance of what happened here that Trump committed, the acts that he committed, that, that the significance of that for our constitutional system has to be pointed out and the Democrats should be focusing on it. But the speakers can make the case. They don't have to answer every point, but some of the points can be easily debunked. And I think they should be. I think the it's my my view is that we need to go back to I think Watergate shows an important example. The country was riveted on the debate. It was serious. It was grave. It raised the question of how our uh, democracy was going to survive. I think that the Democrats have to try to hold to that standard. I think it's vital because the case has not really been made up to now as to why impeachment is important, why it was in the Constitution, why it's important, what Donald Trump did and was trying to do, which was to undermine our electoral system, our free election system. And if he's going to continue to do that, then he's a threat to our society. That's what has to be presented in a very clear, simple way. I'm not disagreeing, but I don't think that, first of all, the the scholars uh, panel is going to go forward, whatever we say here. But I think the focus has to be, why does Donald Trump have to be removed? It's not just because he committed a high crime and misdemeanor or bribery. What does it mean to keep him in office when those acts have been committed? And that's the, the significance of it has to be pointed out. And I think the Democrats need to work carefully at trying to focus that argument. And not only, I guess, the acts that have been committed, but the threat to the coming election. I mean, this is, you know, there's an actual worry that left on uh, to his own devices. He will try to to rig the election uh, again in his favor. Okay, final thoughts, Jill Weinbanks. I would say that I agree with both David and Liz on this. And that I think that both of their points can be combined. So, Chairman Nadler, if you are listening, the answer to this is you need to put a hypothetical to the experts that starts with, based on the following facts established by the House Intelligence Committee, what would you say is the answer under our Constitution? And by doing that, you focus on the threat to our democracy, the threat to the 2020 election, you have the facts that are totally clear, and you put those as the focus of the academic answer, rather than just asking, in general, what does the Constitution say about impeachment? What is the Constitution answer about impeachment for the following facts? And those are a huge threat to our system, to our democracy. And that's what they should be answering. Thank you very much to David, Jill, and Liz. I think that discussion perfectly sets the table for Wednesday's hearing. And we now bring you previous episode of Talking Feds, in which Professor Larry Tribe and Professor Erwin Chemerinsky, probably the two most prominent authoritative constitutional law professors in the land, and Congress member Jamie Raskin himself, an eminent constitutional law professor, but for current purposes, a member of Congress and the Judiciary Committee, discussed the meaning of high crimes and misdemeanors. It's a discussion that I think really does 
rebut, hopefully, the concern of David Frum that this material is just inherently arcane and pointy-headed. Welcome to a very special episode of Talking Feds. We have an amazing show for you today, and I feel incredibly fortunate to be hosting it. We're going to be taking a close look at the constitutional concept of high crimes and misdemeanors, which the Constitution specifies is required to trigger the impeachment and removal of the president and other officials. That concept feels amorphous and arcane to many people, and yet it is the key to determining how the country should respond to a long series of legal and political abuses by the President of the United States. And the task feels all the more exigent in the wake of Special Counsel Robert Mueller's statement, leaving no doubt that the issue of the President's conduct is now firmly in Congress's hands. And for our discussion, we have brought together three of the hands-down most eminent and important thinkers in the country, just an unbelievably high-powered group. They are Lawrence Tribe, the Carl M. Loeb University professor at Harvard Law School, author of the leading treatise, American Constitutional Law, a world-famous advocate who's argued before the Supreme Court 36 times, and most recently, the author, with Joshua Matz, of a primer on impeachment to end a presidency. Welcome, Larry Tribe, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Harry. Next, Erwin Chemerinsky, Dean of Berkeley Law School at the University of California, Berkeley, previous founding dean of the University of California Irvine School of Law from 2008 to 2017, the author of two leading treatises on constitutional law and federal jurisdiction, and one of the most cited legal scholars in the country. Welcome, Erwin Chemerinsky, and thank you so much for joining us. It's terrific to be with you. And finally, Congressman Jamie Raskin, himself a longtime constitutional scholar and now a member of the House representing Maryland's 8th District, and perhaps more importantly, a member of the House Judiciary Committee, which is where impeachment proceedings would begin. Welcome so much, Jamie Raskin, and thank you for joining us. And thank you for having me. I'm Harry Littman. I'm a former United States attorney and deputy assistant attorney general and a current Washington Post columnist, definitely the junior partner in this gathering, but I will do my best to keep up. We could spend the balance of the episode detailing the credentials of our three guests, but I'm loath to lose even a minute of our discussion. So let me just report that the air is bracing here on Mount Olympus, and let's dive right in to the discussion. I want to start by hopefully clearing away a couple misconceptions. First, there's this offsided notion that Congressman Gerald Ford, then the House Minority Leader, advanced in 1970. Ford provided a blunt answer to an old question. He said, an impeachable offense is whatever a majority of the House of Representatives considers it to be at a given moment in history. But the suggestion that it's all standardless and open-ended can't be right, can it? It's just a meaningless tautology. There, high crimes and misdemeanors does have content. Does everyone agree there are right or wrong answers here? Sure. I think it's important to separate what Congress has the power to do from the constitutional standard. Literally, Congress can impeach for high crimes and misdemeanors, meaning whatever a majority of the House says and two-thirds of the Senate agrees to. But these words in the Constitution like all words in the Constitution, should be given meaning. And we should talk about what are high crimes and misdemeanors. All members of Congress take an oath to uphold the Constitution, and they should be consistent with the meaning of these words, not just the exercise of the power they possess. Larry and Jamie uh, agree with that, yes? Yeah, I agree completely. I mean, theoretically, Congress could get away with impeaching a pumpkin for being a pumpkin, but that's not what the Constitution means. All right. Uh, and then second, we have in the wake of the Mueller report an understandable, perhaps, focus on did the president commit a crime according to the federal statutory code? But I want to also uh, suggest or ask you, there's a distinct difference between a high crime and misdemeanor, notwithstanding the use of the word crime, 
and a crime in the federal code. And in fact, it's clear that conduct doesn't even need to be maligned to be impeachable. If the president just decides to watch TV all day and not do his or her job, that would be a justifiable uh, article of impeachment. Jamie, start with you. Does that make sense? Well, you know, in the Venn diagram of it, um, there are high crimes and misdemeanors that would be federal or state criminal offenses. Bribery is one of them, which is both constitutionally assigned in the impeachment clause, but also is against the law. Obstruction of justice is another. But then there are lots of things that a president could do that would be high crimes and misdemeanors. Acting in contempt of Congress, for example, abusing power was one of the articles of impeachment in the Nixon investigation, um, disrespecting uh, the lawful authority of the other branches and so on that are not codified in the federal criminal code. And then there are also things which would be criminal statutory offenses that wouldn't necessarily be high crimes and misdemeanors. I think uh, the Clinton impeachment uh, might be a good example of that, where perhaps Clinton could have been convicted of perjury, but what he lied about was an act of sex. And so I view that as a low crime and misdemeanor. It's something that doesn't rise to the level of the constitutional indication from the specification of treason and bribery, which suggests we're talking about offenses against the character of our government and a fundamental breach of trust and disloyalty to the American people and the rule of law. I really like that way of looking at it as a sort of Venn diagram. So one more quick detour. Jamie mentions the actual presence in the text of two denominated crimes, treason and bribery. Larry, any particular opinion about the interpretive aid of the phrase high crimes and misdemeanors that is provided by the contiguity of treason and bribery as a specified justification? I think so, Harry. The fact that treason and bribery are mentioned before other high crimes and misdemeanors suggests that the whole concept of crimes and misdemeanors involves betrayal of the country and betrayal in a way that involves the president's intent. That is, you don't commit high crimes and misdemeanors by accident any more than you take a bribe or commit treason by accident. These are deliberate betrayals, and I very much agree with Jamie Raskin that the category of high crimes and misdemeanors is all about offenses against the nation, not necessarily violations of the federal criminal laws, which after all didn't exist at the time that the high crimes and misdemeanors standard was put in the Constitution. There are a lot of things the president could do that would be clearly impeachable, like deciding to pardon everybody who is a registered Democrat or registered Republican, which would be an abuse of power, but not a crime. At least arguably. Let's cut to the chase and situate the discussion in our current situation, because President Trump seems to have committed, I think, again, about this, the Venn diagram image from Jamie. There are, sort of, there are multiple kinds of misconduct that the Congress could take up as potential impeachable offenses and multiple instances of each category. So we're not here to reach the bottom line factual judgment. That would be for Congress about whether he's done them. But obviously, we have plausible cases of different categories of problematic conduct. So we have criminal conduct, perhaps, that predates his candidacy as a president, criminal conduct as a candidate, to win the election, uh, non-criminal but objectionable, opprobrious conduct in exploiting and welcoming Russia's effort to help his candidacy and hurt Clinton's candidacy. And that's all before he takes office. And now in office, criminal conduct to obstruct justice. And then, importantly, a whole bevy of misconduct in office, attacks on the rule of law, on democratic institutions, attempts to corrupt the criminal justice system, to bring charges against political enemies, what I think of for shorthand as banana republic behavior. So we have this long possible bill of particulars, and we can double back on categories, but let me start with the sort of $64,000 question for each of you. If 
Tribe, Chemerinsky, Raskin were a one-man House Judiciary Committee. What would be the most serious or first article of impeachment that you would want to be taking up for consideration? So let, let's just go in that order, Larry, Irwin, and Jamie, if that's okay. Sure. I, I think, Harry, the most serious impeachable offense would be collaboration with a hostile foreign power to become president in circumstances where one would then owe allegiance to that power because of their leverage and then covering it up. It's all part of a unitary violation of the fundamental duty of loyalty to the United States, loyalty that is exemplified in the president's oath. And I think segmenting it in greater detail would miss the point that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And yet, but the betrayal that you see is is more um, keen and worrisome where it involves a foreign uh, adversary. I, so, in other words, you've you've chosen to give primacy right. over uh, arguable betrayals of the people, at, you know, and the people's democratic institutions. You you take the most serious offense to be not not treason per se, but the kind of, of joining with Russia as a hostile enemy. Now, and, and in terms of the fact, let me just stay with you for a second. So we're talking about the parts in section one of the Mueller report, the collaboration and welcoming, even if it falls short of a criminal conspiracy and a formal agreement and overt act. Is that right? That's exactly right. And it's partly, even though I'm not what one might call an originalist, somebody who tries to read the minds of the framers and ask what they originally meant. I do put a lot of emphasis on the fact that in the founding of the Republic, there was a deep concern with the fact that other countries that were not necessarily friendly to the American project, Britain, France, and others, might ultimately call the shots and the idea of a president who is, if not a Manchurian candidate, then a French or a Russian or an English candidate, the fact that such a person could become the president of the United States was a central concern and one that I think we need to take seriously today. Irwin. Leary is very persuasive. I don't want to repeat what he said, but I'm going to point to two things which may be cheating in terms of the question you asked. The first is obstruction of justice. One need only read the Mueller report to see that the evidence of obstruction of justice is overwhelming. And obstruction of justice is a federal crime. It thus fits within that part of Jamie's Venn diagram. The fact that Mueller felt that he couldn't indict a sitting president doesn't deny that it's obstruction of justice. And so I think it's something that if I were on the House Judiciary Committee or advising it, I would want to focus on. But I also want to point to a second thing that doesn't fit in the way we've talked about high crimes and misdemeanors, but I don't think it lost. Unconstitutional behavior by the president, even if not illegal, can constitute a high crime and misdemeanor. And the reality is, since the day he was sworn into office, Donald Trump has been violating both of the emoluments clauses of the Constitution. The one in Article 1, Section 9, that says that an official of the federal government can't receive presents or emoluments from a foreign government. And the one in Article 2 that says the president can receive no emoluments other than the salary paid for the office. The fact that there has been this ongoing violation of the Constitution is to me also a high crime and misdemeanor. So, Jamie, of course, you are on the House Judiciary Committee, and I should have added, if there is any question that I ask you that you're constrained not to answer, uh, I will uh, happily or you can happily uh, reformulate it. But uh, have I served up an answerable question to you? Sure. And of course, I speak only for myself here, but I, I agree very much with uh, both what Professor Tribe and Professor Chemerinsky said. You know, both of the, the hypothetical forms of conduct they've described uh, definitely constitute high crimes and misdemeanors worthy of aggressive uh, impeachment inquiry and efforts, you know, in the event that all of it turns out to be true. I would add to it a couple of things. Um, one is that since the Mueller report was released, even in its redacted form, 
The president uh, has essentially ordered all of his employees in the executive branch and all of his subordinates to stop cooperating with Congress. So they are not complying with lawful demands for information. They are not appearing to testify. They are not complying with congressional subpoenas. They are acting in categorical wholesale contempt of Congress. That, too, was one of the articles that was brought against Richard Nixon for a far more finely tuned and targeted form of disobedience and defiance of congressional will. But they're making it impossible for us to do our jobs. The Supreme Court has emphasized that the investigative fact-finding function is central and essential to having a lawmaking branch. In other words, we can't decide how to make laws and how to proceed as Congress if we can't get the information that we need. So the president compounded the obstruction of justice that we read about, the 11 episodes recited by Special Counsel Mueller in Volume 2. He compounded it with a categorical obstruction of justice in the form of contempt of Congress. I just want to underscore where Irwin was going in terms of talking about violations of the emoluments clause. That was not part of what the special counsel was looking at, but I think it is going to uh, assume a lot more public prominence in the uh, weeks to come. We have a president who has collected hundreds of thousands or more likely millions of dollars, perhaps even tens of millions of dollars from foreign princes, kings, and governments in violation of the Foreign Emoluments Clause. He's also made it possible for the U.S. government to be putting hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars into various Trump enterprises, the hotels, the office tower, and so on, because, you know, this these are his uh, weekend and vacation destinations. And so they go and they spend a ton of money there. The president has basically converted the presidency into a money-making operation for himself, for his family, and for his friends. And everyone understood, as Michael Cohen told us when he testified before a committee, that the campaign was supposed to be the greatest infomercial of all time to publicize his name and to get the, the businesses and the hotels and the different products out there. Since becoming president, he has continued to stay in business. He has not divested himself of any of his businesses. He's not put anything into a blind trust. They've continued to operate the businesses. And I think that the various forms of tax fraud, financial fraud, Money laundering, all of these things are going to take center stage over the next several weeks because they're not part of the Mueller report, but they're something of intense interest to Congress. And there, this is all information that we're going after, not just in the Judiciary Committee, but in the Oversight Committee, the Ways and Means Committee, and other committees in Congress. You've given us an indication of what you think is, all three of you, is the most sort of grave or the priority article of impeachment. Do you think that the committee as a whole is likely to share that judgment or will it likely have a, have a different uh, focus for its- You know, when uh, um, Kenneth Starr brought his report in to the Republican-controlled Judiciary Committee, they moved to impeach just based on the report itself. They had no further witnesses or testimony and they grounded it in that. And it has been suggested that we could do the same thing in terms of presidential obstruction of justice based on the numerous episodes that are recounted by special counsel Mueller. The The issue, though, is that there are um, multiple other kinds of high crimes and misdemeanors of which we have already substantial evidence brought forward, uh, both in volume one of the report, as Professor Tribe points out, but also things that we've seen ourselves. The obstruction that uh, we read about in the report came galloping off the pages and right into the halls of Congress when the president refused to uh, allow any uh, evidentiary discovery to go forward with Congress. Um, and then we have the emoluments clause and so on. I think that the uh, in the event that we were to proceed with an impeachment inquiry, the Judiciary Committee would have to uh, develop these different categories of offenses and move very quickly to figure out what is the evidence we need, what are the witnesses we need, and then go after it and pursue them along parallel tracks and then try to bring forward a coherent story about what was taking place within each one of them. Erwin, any thoughts? It might be outside your ballywick on where Congress is actually going to be going here. I can't speak to where Congress will actually be going. Jamie has to be the one to speak to that. But I do want to talk about where, if anyone would ask my opinion, I think Congress should be going. 
I think they should focus on where is the strongest evidence of an impeachable offense? What is the type of offense that's most likely to be understood by the public? Because having the public understand is going to be crucial. And what's least likely to be regarded as partisan? Because inevitably, this is going to be something that's very divisive. But if it is a strong indication of an impeachable offense, and perhaps criminal as opposed to non-criminal would be strongest in this regard, one that the public could easily comprehend, and one that everybody, Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative, could see, that's where I think Congress should be focusing. And and any thought about your, your number two? What kind of offense do you think is easiest for the public to comprehend? My sense is either what Larry was talking about in terms of collaboration with a foreign power or obstruction of justice would be the easiest for the public to comprehend. My concern about some of the others, like the Emoluments Clause, is it just hasn't either been understood by the public or attracted the kind of public outrage that I wish it had and I think it should. Larry? Well, my thought is that so much of what is fundamentally corrosive of democracy and of the rule of law sounds too abstract to much of the public. Obstruction of justice, people tend to respond by saying, well, if there wasn't any underlying offense, who cares about the cover-up? It's a mistake, but it is a mistake that so many people make that we have to take it into account. I think that the most fundamental point is a lot like what you emphasized, Harry, and that is we don't want to be a banana republic. People are in grave danger if we have a president who can go after his enemies by weaponizing the tools of the Justice Department, who can compromise national security by exposing secrets in order to go after the political opponents of the president. I think people recognize instinctively that for us to have a government in which people are fundamentally at the mercy of a political machine is dangerous. And I think that demonstrating that that's what this presidency has become, though it's not technically a series of criminal offenses, is going to be extremely important. And that can be done through rather dramatic testimony. I do think that the Emoluments Clause violations were extraordinarily serious and represented violations of the Constitution from the very beginning of this presidency. But I would also caution that people have even now not fully caught up to the idea of why that's important. And I also think there's an analytical point worth making, and that is we don't want to say that every constitutional violation by a president is a cause for impeachment. This president has violated the Constitution by my count 473 times at least. But we don't want courts to think that they cannot strike down a presidential action, whether about immigration or something else, on constitutional grounds without thereby triggering an effort to remove the president. There are a lot of things that presidents can do that don't comport with the Constitution, that are not themselves the kinds of profound violations of public trust that ought to justify removal of a duly elected president. I think that's exactly right. And I would draw the distinction that you do between constitutional violations that are a serious violation of public trust and other constitutional violations, however important they may be. I think the Emoluments Clause fits into the former for just the reasons Jamie said. This is an instance of a president who is using his office to profit himself in a way that violates the Constitution. That is an abuse of public trust. And if I could add to that, I think it links to Larry's original point about um, cooperation with a foreign power in the course of acquiring the office of the presidency. Um, the whole purpose of the Emoluments Clause was to guarantee the absolute undivided loyalty of the president to the American people and not to foreign governments who could show up with trinkets or presents or big cash payoffs. Now, in, in the past, presidents who have gotten something as small as a Persian rug um, or a set of cufflinks or something like that would come to Congress and ask the question whether he could keep it. And Congress would either say, it's okay, you can keep it, or no, you can't keep it, turn it over to the State Department. Um, and 
this is relating to things worth like $100. Yet this president, despite widespread public protest, despite litigation over the subject, has never once come to Congress to ask for our permission to keep the hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars he's been collecting from foreign governments. He's made uh, one uh, or two almost comical uh, voluntary payments of what he calls the profits of foreign government spending in his hotels to the Treasury. Of course, that's not what the law is. You're not supposed to estimate on your own without any uh, accurate accounting what you received and what the profits were and then turn it over without consulting Congress. The Constitution says you must come to Congress. Congress must consent in order for you to keep it. So I think the fact that he's felt he's had to give hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, to the U.S. government gives the game away. He's collecting millions of dollars this way. We know of lots of countries like Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, the Chinese government, which have been making payments to the Trump Hotel or the Trump Office Tower or to various other businesses. And then the president uh, makes this ludicrous um, estimate on his own without ever coming to Congress. So I think he's going to be called to account for that. And it does go to the question of who is he serving in office? Is he serving the American people or is he serving himself or his family or business or other people that we don't know about? And, you know, the, the whole point, Harry, and I agree very much with Jamie, the whole point of the Foreign Emoluments Clause was that the American people should not have to guess whether a president who is bending policy in the direction of Russia or Saudi Arabia or Turkey is doing so in order to fatten his own bottom line or doing so out of interest for the American people. You don't have to prove bribery in order to be in that zone where the American people need to be able to trust that the president is acting out of the national interest and not out of his own personal interest. But President Trump made his first foreign visit to Saudi Arabia, not to Mexico or Canada, not to our neighbors in this hemisphere, but to Saudi Arabia. Um, he never once uttered a peep of protest about what has been the subject of American protest for a long time, which is the human rights violations taking place against women, against religious minorities, against political dissenters there. And of course, the president, um, the charitably speaking, turned the other cheek when um, the uh, homicidal crown prince of Saudi Arabia was implicated in the killing of uh, the Washington Post uh, journalist, Mr. Khashoggi. So he certainly... If it has nothing to do with the various financial entanglements with Saudi Arabia, he has some other mysterious reason for showing them extreme favor, the kind of favor that he has shown to Vladimir Putin as well. I wish we could continue this for a semester. I would definitely take uh, the course again and again. But here's a question I want to be sure we cover. So what went or is going wrong? I mean, clearly the framers left us this remedy and this remedy only for the circumstances of rank abuse of office and criminal conduct that we find ourselves in. So is there some fundamental flaw in the constitutional scheme? You know, what would Madison and Hamilton say about the spot we're in if they could, you know, be here and recognize that the one break glass tool they gave us doesn't seem to be in the offing? Well, um, Lincoln wondered whether, um, you know, government of the people, by the people, for the people uh, would perish from the earth. And uh, he knew that it took the sustained, passionate engagement of the people to make all of our institutions work. I think the good news is that a lot of our institutions are working pretty well right now. We certainly have an aroused civil society. The press is out there uh, on top of it. And Congress is waking up. Um, to say that we are the preeminent branch of government. There's a reason why the framers said that we have the power to impeach the president for high crimes and misdemeanors. He doesn't have the power to impeach us. His job is to take care that the laws are faithfully executed. If he doesn't do it, we have the power to remove him. Um, it, it's not our only remedy, however. Elections are uh, a built-in quadrennial remedy, and that's clearly on everybody's mind, wherever they are on the issue of uh, an impeachment inquiry and launching one. And I am uh, strongly in favor of doing that. Um, 
And we have other remedies as well. We have, we have other levels of government which have been standing up to try to protect democracy. And the courts have been packed a lot by Donald Trump, but they haven't been completely packed. And we have judges like Judge Sullivan and Judge Massetti in the emoluments cases who are doing a very fine job articulating what the rule of law is and insisting upon justice and as well as due process at the same time. So I think that um, don't count American democracy out. Don't count an impeachment inquiry out. Uh, everybody needs to speak up forcefully um, about where we are. And I'm not saying the Constitution is perfect. It's always an unfolding, uh, unfinished project. And there are things we can do to improve it. But I do think that the pathway forward for us in America today is through the Constitution. As the administration grows more corrupt and more lawless and more defiant of Congress, we have to rely ever more heavily on the rule of law in the Constitution to get us through this tough period. Erwin, are, are we seeing a constitutional flaw? Yes. I think the Constitution requires and assumes the good faith of those who govern us. And when people act in bad faith, the Constitution often doesn't provide us a remedy. So when Merrick Garland was nominated for the Supreme Court and the Senate said, no hearings, no vote, that was they're not acting in good faith and violating long traditions. When Donald Trump says to Congress, I'm not allowing anybody in the executive branch to go testify and I'm not going to provide documents, that's not acting in the good faith and following the traditions. And the problem is when those who are governing us aren't acting in the good faith the Constitution assumes, it's very difficult for there to be a remedy. It is very hard for the impeachment and removal remedy to work if at least one House of Congress is controlled by the president's party and that party isn't willing to stand up to the president. And so I agree with everything that Jamie just said, and yet there is also a feeling as we look at the Constitution that it doesn't have very good solutions in a situation like this, a president who's clearly breaking the law, abusing the trust of the office, and yet a Congress that ultimately seems unwilling to impeach and remove him. Okay. So, so indictment of, in part, the constitutional uh, scheme. Larry, what, what's your thoughts? Well, I guess I would say that, first of all, like Jamie, I'm not ready to give up on the system. Judges like Judge Mehta and others have shown that an independent judiciary can make a difference. I also very much agree with Irwin that the system as designed depended very much on people of goodwill and good faith. We don't have that now. And the question is whether in a world where political divisions are as deep as they now are, where social media are as capable as they now are of isolating people in their own silos, where things like partisan gerrymandering and the Electoral College and the malapportionment of the Senate provide structural defects, whether in that world we are fated to become yet another democracy that didn't quite make it. I think only a combination of the extraordinary energy of the rising young people of this country and the commitment and political devotion of people like Jamie Raskin and others in Congress, only that combination can give us a real hope of becoming a government of the people, by the people, and for the people that does not perish from the earth. Let me, uh, with great hesitation, push back, uh, Larry, on both what you and Irwin said, because I think it's arguable, uh, you know, in my le my less detailed study than yours, that the framers did contemplate the lack of good faith in leaders, uh, and that, in in fact, there, you know, the possibility of a rascals being elected was in their uh, purview, and this was exactly one of the reasons that the impeachment was there as an ultimate remedy. And yet, confronted with it, it doesn't seem to to work. Is there something about the current political impasse or just the state of society and technology that we're in now that, in fact, makes the Constitution not up to that to the task? Because I would say the Constitution does contemplate that this kind of malfeasance and left a remedy that seems difficult now to actually be put into practice. 
You know, I think we have an almost irresistible desire to imagine that the framers of the Constitution were demigods and that the scheme they put in place was a scheme for all seasons. They didn't imagine that there would be political parties. They imagined that the Electoral College would filter out absolutely unfit leaders like Trump. They imagined that there would be marginal cases in which we would have to pull the impeachment trigger and it would work. I think the fact is that the design, though brilliant, was flawed. And though I don't have a suggestion for a way to improve it globally, I think we have to recognize the possibility that it is not exactly what we hope for and that we are going to go through a very difficult period in which it's not clear where we will come out in the end. Yeah, in particular, I think this political party's point is huge. They envisioned that there would be four or five factions fighting it out. And when it's come down to the to a two-party system, you have the possibility for this sort of stalemate that we are now experiencing, where if you think about a system where there are three or four or five parties and it's not the the you know one party rule, then we wouldn't be in the fix in exactly this way anyway. Irwin, um, thoughts about my pushback saying, you know, Madison, Hamilton, the others contemplated bad faith on the part of rulers, or did, did they not? Of course they did. They knew from studying world history that often rascals came to power, or often those who came to power abused that authority. But they also knew that any system of government depends on the good faith of those who govern us. That isn't something that's new today. There's always been the danger that presidents could ignore court orders, that presidents could use the power of their office to profit themselves. Unfortunately, the Constitution that was created doesn't have that many built-in checks. Impeachment is one, but impeachment is made very difficult by the structure of the Constitution. It's made more difficult by our partisan, deeply divided times, made more difficult by political parties. In the end, though, I've got to agree with what Larry and Jamie both said. I have faith in the structure of the Constitution, and I believe that if people are attentive, if they work hard, the Constitution will survive even Donald Trump. But I also agree it's not going to be easy to get there. A million thanks to Professor Lawrence Tribe, Dean Irwin Chemerinsky, and Congressman Jamie Raskin. I'm a little stunned at my own good fortune for being part of this high-level conversation, the likes of which I don't think I've heard before. This was really one for the books. Thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to this special episode of Talking Feds. Talking Feds is produced by Jenny Josephson, Dave Moldovan, Anthony Lamos, and Rebecca Lopatin. David Lieberman is our contributing writer. Production assistance by Sarah Philippoum. Adeline Sire, Ashley Westerman, Joel Oliker, Xavier Vasquez, Corey Fujikawa, and Natalie Jones recorded this episode. And Cassandra Sant provided the transcription. Thanks, as always, to the incredible Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. See you next time. <laughs>